All right, we are on Lord's Day 34. Lord's Day 34. day 34, let me pray for us. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us this morning as we, as we hear your word, hear what your law says. We would rejoice to know that you're directing us and teaching us and showing us how to live in such a way where we would have joy that you're instructing us as to who and what our new nature is and what we now love. And that you would point our eyes to your son, that we would have uh, the proper fuel and motivation and the means by which we could uh, carry out what your law demands, which is our desire, Lord. So teach us about your law today um, and, and grow us in the ability to respond to you rightly. Pray in your name. Amen. All right, so we are in Lord's Day 34, and we are addressing this question What is God's law? What is God's law? That's kind of the question that starts off this next section of the catechism that's going to go for quite a while. We are in the gratitude section. The previous two sections were what? Guilt and grace. Guilt, grace, gratitude. We are in the gratitude section. And the question I want you to have in your mind as we go through this whole section, through all the next weeks, months, however long it takes us, I want you to have this question in your mind. What is the proper response to God that I should have? How should I properly respond to God in gratitude? How should I respond? That's the question you're going to have in your mind. How should I respond? And so let me, how should you respond to God? <laughs> what should be the response to our God? What should it look like? What's that? Obedience. Yeah, obedience. First, maybe we even say first, rest. Believe and rest and then obey as a fruit of that rest. So what is the proper response is what you're going to be thinking this morning. As I talk, you're going to be thinking, what's the proper response to God I should have? The first question, question answer 92, asks, what is God's law? And what we have is a long excerpt from Exodus 20, basically a, a big portion of the, of the chapter, big portion of scripture is our catechism. Let me read it for us. What is God's law? Answer, God spoke all these words. The first commandment, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing love to the, to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. The third commandment, you shall not Make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the, sea, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them but rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. 
The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. The eighth commandment, you shall not steal. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or a female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It, it's sobering to read the law. Um, and as I said a few weeks ago, you know, it, it should be just that reading of the law that just strikes us. Um, but there is God's law. Our first question asks, what is God's law? Here the answer is given, this, this excerpt from Exodus 20. And this excerpt from Exodus 20 is now going to be expounded upon in the next series of questions and answers, the Ten Commandments. But how should I, as a Christian, view this law, these Ten Commandments? Um, when Ursinus wrote his commentary on the catechism, he takes a long portion of his text in the commentary to talk about this. Before he even starts talking about the Ten Commandments, he stops and kind of wants to go, okay, wait a minute, how should we view the law? What, what should we see? What should we look at as we view the law? And so I think it's important for us to stop for a minute and make sure we have a couple things uh, clear in our understanding about the law. Now, these shouldn't be novel to you, but we need to keep them in our mind as we move forward through catechism. What should we keep in our mind about the law? What is God's law? First of all, we should think about God's law as that which is our delight, right? We delight in God's law. Psalm 119, verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches, the psalmist says. God's law is beautiful. We love it. It's a reflection of him. So the first, how should I view God's law? For these next weeks and months that we go through these Ten Commandments, as you come in here, you should hear something and go, that's my delight. It's beautiful. Make sense? Secondly, we should remember, now think about this one with me. We should remember that the law comes with promises. The law, now I don't think we usually think of it that way. We think of the, the gospel has promises, but the law also has promises, two specifically. The first, the law, what does the law promise? Life, if you do what? If you keep, right, keep it and live. So the first way in which the law makes a promise is this. If you keep it, you will live. Have you kept it? <laughs> Have you in union with Christ kept it? So you will live. Right? There's a promise. But there's another way in which the law makes a promise to us too. Do you know what it is? Y yes, that's true. I'm thinking more for the Christian. Was that? Joy. The law promises joy with obedience. And I think we sometimes forget that. We put the law into, and this is dangerous if we forget that. We put the law into the category of something that's just the threat. No, we desire the law. We can't keep it perfectly, Christ has for us, but the law promises us joy and obedience. It's our joy to, to obey the law. If you don't obey the law as a Christian, you don't lose your salvation, you don't lose God's favor, you don't lose him being pleased with you, but you lose a lot of joy. Sin brings pain. That's the equation you need to remember. Sin brings pain. So we should see the law first as our delight, but we should also see the law as promising joy in our, in our, in our obedience. 
Because really the law is written on our hearts now as new creations. It's written on your heart. It's what you want to do. It's what you long to do. It's what you enjoy to do. If you want to know, what is it that I like as a person? What do I want to do today? Read the law. That's who you are. And if anything comes into your mind that says, that's not what I like, that's not what I want to do, that's your flesh. Don't listen to it. You want to do what the law says. That's who you are now. I don't care what your feelings tell you. I don't care what your neighbor tells you. I care what it, you want to do what the law says. It's a joy to you. It's your delight. It's written on your heart. But then that raises the question. If it's our delight and it's written on our heart, why in the world are we spending all these months going to go over something that's already written on our heart? In other words, why do we need to be taught the law if it's already written on our heart? Does that make sense, that question? Why do I need to be taught it? It's written on my heart. I delight in it. What do I need anything more for? I don't need to hear it anymore. Just come tell me some good news from the gospel, make me feel good about myself, and go home. No, we need to hear God's law. First of all, we need to hear God's law um, and be taught God's law because while it's written on our hearts, the way in which it's written on our hearts, and, and listen, I'm not going to get into all the inner workings of this because I don't know them because they're not told us in the scripture. But we know that the way it's written on our heart and the way that we presently know it needs the assistance of special revelation for us to fully understand what it says. So you need the, you need the assistance of, when I say special revelation, what do I mean? God's got to tell us. Where does he tell us? In the Word. When I say special revelation, I mean it's in his Word. We need the Word to help us define and understand what is now our delight. Though it's written on our hearts, we need the law to make that clear to us. We also need it to bring us to repentance, right, and to remind us of our need. But we need specifically, as we go through these next months, we need to remember, I need to be taught, it sounds kind of silly, I need to be taught what I like. I need to be taught in detail what, it's, what it really is. I need it expounded to me, explained to me. Does that make sense so far? Any questions so far? Are you following me? So let's seek to understand what God teaches us in his word about this law that we love. Okay? Yes? Can you get to the why we need to be taught? To the what? Why do we need to be taught? We need to be taught it because though it's written on our hearts, we don't fully understand all all the workings of it specifically. We need, right, we need that special revelation side to make it perfectly clear to us. Yep, exactly. And the truth of the matter is, and again, I don't, I don't know all the inner workings of how this goes in us. It's written on our heart exactly all what does that mean. I think it means it's changed, our desires are changed is what that means. But we also have our flesh that's kind of countering that all the time, and we need to be taught through the word what it is that really is our desire. Any other questions? Making sense? So what are we talking about? The law. What is it? It's our delight. We love it. We want to do it. It's written on our hearts. We need to be taught it. We need to be taught it through God's word so that we can then respond in gratitude because the promise is joy and obedience. And that's not wrong or bad to say. Okay, so let's seek to understand what God teaches us in his word about this law that we love. That's what we're going to start doing right here because in this very first um, question and answer about the law, we're given the first commandment to expound and to look at. But before that, in question and answer 93, we're told something else about the law. Question and answer 93. How are these commandments divided? Answer. Into two tables. The first, and listen, all we're doing now is we're learning about the law. That's what we're seeking to learn about the law. And the first thing we're being told about the law, it's divided into two tables. The first has four commandments, teaching us how we ought to live in relation to God. The second, six commandments, teaching us how we owe, teaching us what we owe our neighbor. 
Think about it, guys. God could have written all of the law in tiny, small print on a little pebble if he wanted, right? He could have written it all in one stone, but he divided it on the two tablets. And we have kind of two sections of the law that we see in that. And Jesus summed this up. We know this because Jesus summed this up for us uh, in the two great commandments. First, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second, love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two kind of tablets, the two ways the law is divided. So we start now with the first table. How should we respond to God? And that's question and answer 94. How should we respond to God? How should we respond to God? Remember, that's what I'm telling you we should be thinking over and over again. Here's the first way. Question and answer 94. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? Answer. That I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. That I rightly know the only true God, trust him alone, and look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor God with all my heart. In short, that I give up anything rather than go against God's will in any way. That's long. A lot of words there. Let's take it apart and see what's being told to us here. We're expounding the first commandment. Maybe we should stop and remember what the first commandment is. Look up to the first question. The first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the commandment we're looking at right now. What's the proper response to God? Have no other gods before me. Our answer begins to explain this, and it says this. I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation. What's that mean? We can lose our salvation? I thought we didn't believe that. What's this mean? Not rhetorical. What do you think? What do you think it means? Sure, there's always a chance that you've, you've not been saved. But it's weird language for that, because he says endanger my own salvation. Isn't that strange? Yeah, see, I guess he's assuming you at least think that you have it. Yeah. What's going on there? There's no other God that can save you. And so there's a salvation being offered to you. And you put that offer in danger if you turn to some other Savior other than the one Savior that exists. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That's really all that's being said here. Mm-hmm. right? You're, you, you put your salvation in danger if you look anywhere other than Christ for that salvation. So that, that make sure that's, you understand that's, what, that's what's being said. Not wanting to do that. I want to endanger my salvation. In other words, let me reword it. I want to have just one Savior, the real Savior. That's the Savior I want. In order to do that, what do I want to do? The rest of the answer. Avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, and superstitious rites. That's really kind of the, the heart of the command here in the language, right? I'm being told to avoid and shun. Avoid and shun. Avoid and shun what? Idolatry, and then a list of things that seem really odd to us, perhaps. Sorcery, superstitious rites, prayers to saints or creatures. But the first thing we're told is to avoid all idols, all idolatry. This obviously is in line with what the Bible commands over and over and over again to avoid idols. 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. But what is idolatry? 
Idolatry, guys, is going to be defined for us in the very next question. So let's skip ahead and see the definition and then come back to this question. The next question defines it for us like this. What is idolatry? Answer. Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in the word. Let me read that again. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in the word. So to trust in something alongside of God or in place of God, this gives God's place to something else. That's idolatry. It's a good way to think about it. It's giving God's place to something else. Now those things listed alongside idolatry in the previous question, in that odd-sounding list, they're put there because they all really are ways in which we do just that, in which we replace God with something else. Sorcery, and, and I know there are words that we hear and we go, sorcery, what do we... Superstitious rites, like you probably didn't do some kind of ritual when you left your house today, right? What, what's he talking about? Praying the saints, all those things, they do what we just described tonight an idolatry is. They are seeking guidance or intercession from that which is not God. And, you know, maybe it's helpful to consider these practices in, say, the Catholic Church, since that's kind of the context from which this was born. In the Catholic Church, um, you can see things like prayers made to saints. You can even see things, if you go to the Mass, like superstitious acts. Things that... that, that, that the Catholics during that Mass trusted in and looked to for deliverance and guidance and even salvation. But this also includes things in the category of sorcery. Things like, what would be examples of sorcery? Things like looking at dreams, trying to interpret dreams, uh, looking for guidance uh, to, to know what's best to do or what the future holds for me somewhere other than in Christ and in his word. So if you're looking for, for, for what's the, what is God, what's best, what's the answer here, and you're going to things other than God for that answer, that could be sorcery, right? We're turning to other sources. Maybe say like looking for supernatural things that are not God. Yeah, supernatural, even supernatural answers maybe is a way to say it. Because if I read my horoscope, I'm not necessarily looking for a, super, a supernatural event, but I'm looking for some kind of supernatural knowledge that's coming from somewhere other than God. Yeah, clear, right. But I'll tell you what, wake up, man, I had this dream last night. I wonder what that meant. I wonder if God's trying to tell me something. What are we doing there? It's a little, little, could be dangerous, right? When you have whole schools of, of believers that do this kind of thing, right? We're going to tell you how to interpret your dreams and we're going to have dream school, and we're, that, that's a real thing. They do that. Talk about it, what, what all these things mean. and it's Sorcery. It's, it's, looking, it's looking somewhere other. Than, it's, it's certainly idolatry, right? It's this superstitious kind of weird, you know, uh, superstitious. I saw this number on the way home. I should look up a Bible verse and see what it means or what. It's superstitious, right? This happened. I wonder what this means. Now, we're not saying God can't ever reveal things to us through, like, Wake us up with things that happen in our life. We know suffering does that. We know, but when, when it's that superstitious kind of a, you know, what is God trying to say to me? And I'm not using God's word. And I'm trying, 
That's, that's, that's idolatry. I'm seeking guidance somewhere other than from God. Okay, yes. Mm-hmm. That, I think it's when we are seeking that. God can do whatever he wants. Yes, exactly. Yeah, when, when we're, we are seeking good, good clarification. Yeah, when I'm trying to figure it out, right? I'm not right. going here, but I'm going to, yeah. That's exactly what you said. It's yeah. We're putting something else in the place of God. Yes, exactly. The way that we do this mostly, though, guys, we're going to get to as we take apart the rest of this answer. Because the truth of the matter is, I think, I mean, we all are guilty of that part as well. But the way in which we replace God in our lives probably isn't mostly through sorcery and superstition. Um, but I want you to get the idea, first of all. If we respond to something other than God, the way that God should be responded to, that's idolatry. If I'm looking for deliverance, somewhere and the place i'm looking for deliverance isn't god that's not appropriate because god should be my deliverer if i'm looking for blessing and guidance somewhere other than god that's not appropriate god should be the place i find those things and if we ask well what would it look like to live a life in which i don't have idols what specifically does this command look like look like lived out in life the rest of the answer shows us if i have god as my only god and none others what would be the result? Or in other words, how do I have, how do I live with God as my only God? Is God taking his place in my life? The rest of the answer says this. And this is, I think the kind of the, the heart of the answer. He, he says, that I, see where I am, the, that I rightly know the only true God? That I rightly know the only true God, trust in him alone, and look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently. And love, fear, and honor God with all my heart. In short, that I give up anything rather than go against God's will in any way. This is where it starts to get convicting. Let's look at that section again. There's, only, there's four things there. It, it sounds like a lot. There's only four things. First, know the only true God. Second, trust him alone. Third, look to him for every good thing humbly and patiently. And fourth, Love, fear, and honor God with all my heart. That's the four categories he's given us. This is what it means to respond appropriately to God. Know God rightly, trust him alone, look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently. And lastly, love, fear, and honor God with all my heart. Notice it all starts with knowing God rightly. That really is the foundation of the rest of what's being said. Arsinus actually makes this clear in his commentary, and he says, all the rest of what he's saying here and all the rest of what he's going to say in the rest of the commandments in the commentary is simply an explanation of what it looks like to know God rightly. When I know rightly who God is, there's a result that comes in the the other three things in his answer. So first, what do I have to do? I need to know God rightly. When I know God rightly, what flows is three things. First, trust God alone. I trust God. When I know God rightly, I trust God alone. He is to be trusted before anyone or anything else. And so we should ask, do we trust him before anything else in our lives? Is what he says the final word for you in all things? Are emotions the final word for you? Is experience the final word for you? Is what your flesh says the final word for you? That's improper. That's idolatry by what we're saying here. We trust God and what God says, what God declares, what God declares about my brothers and sisters around me in this room. That's what's true. Not what my flesh tells me. What God says is true about the situation I find myself in in life. That's what's true. 
Not what my experience tells me. What God says about me in Christ is what's true. Not what I develop or what I... Are we trusting in God alone and seeing what he says is true and depending on him alone for all things? Am I looking to him for good? And that's the second thing. Secondly, if we know God rightly, we are to look to God for every good thing humbly and patiently. I'm to wait upon God to give me good because good only comes from God. He decides best when I should get good and what good should come to me. And so we should ask, am I demanding God give me good in my time that is not humbly and patiently? Am I questioning God's timing in my life? Am I thinking that God owes me some good at a particular time in a particular way? Do we spend time in our life trying to get good from things other than God? Do I turn to things such as sin to try to get what is good? Do I turn to the world to try to get what is good? Or do I find myself in a posture before God in which I'm waiting for a good father to give me what is good in his good time? That's a proper response to God. To turn somewhere else for the good that God should give is idolatry. Third, I'm to love, fear, and honor God with all my heart. The direct path our lives must walk, the most intentional pursuit of our life, if we see who God is, is, is to make sure we render to God the honor that should be God's, the respect and obedience that should be his, and the love that should be his. If I give those things, love, fear, honor, to something else more than I give them to God or in the place of God, that is idolatry. So this, this is what the first commandment is commanding, demanding of us. The proper response to God is that I would be trusting God alone, not looking anywhere else for guidance, and it's God that I'm going to. I'm trusting him first for deliverance. I'm going to him for what's good. I'm humbly waiting for him to give it to me. I'm trusting that his decision about what I get is proper, and I'm giving him the love, fear, and honor that he deserves. All we're saying is we are to be appropriately responding to God. That's the appropriate response in light of who he is as I know him. Does that make sense? Any questions about that part? Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. If I'm viewing him rightly, yes, that, that's, that's exactly right. I don't want to turn to, though, and place my hope, my confidence, my look for what is good for, in anything other than Christ. If I do that, my salvation is in danger, right? Is, is it true to say that to know rightly is different than knowing perfectly? Is there a distinction there? 100%, yes. So to know rightly and to know perfectly, it's a good, it's a good distinction. None of us, I mean, I think we could argue there's no one except God that knows God perfectly, right? There's no, but from what I know, am I responding appropriately to what I know? That's the question. To know what I know, and is it, is it a correct understanding of him from what he's revealed to me, and am I, am I responding appropriately? Now, God has revealed himself in his word, and I can know what he's revealed in his word. And I'll tell you this, if I know what's revealed in his word, I still know him perfectly. 
but I can know what he's revealed in his word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's also maybe important to, as we, that, that statement about rightly knowing the true God. Yeah. And I, you know, I just want to pound this mm-hmm. whenever it's a Trinitarian. Mm-hmm. You know, like, because I think we look at that and we say only true God and we only think of God the Father. Yeah. We don't think of, if we rightly know God, there's God the Father who yeah. elects us, who we put foundation of love. There's yeah. a son who comes and bears the curse There's for us and the spirit who applies all that work, like all of that rightly knowing is how we're living. Yeah, and, and this is the hard part about uh, this, this question and answer in the catechism. And this is why I think Ursinus takes such a long time in the commentary to try to unpack it. Really, at the end of the day, for him to say you need to rightly know God, I mean, he can't stop there and give an entire yeah. theological treatise on who God is, right? Well, because he already it's, has. It, that's what I was going to say, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's what I want to point out. He already, he, that's what he's done. Right? He's already laid that out for us. And so this is why this is coming after that. Right? Remember the order of the catechism. This is, our grat- this is our response, our gratitude. Once we see who God is, guilt, grace. We saw the law. We know what he, who he is. We know the gospel. Now the proper response to knowing God that way. That's what we're talking about. That I know him as the God who he, who's been revealed in the gospel. And as I know him as the God that's been revealed in the gospel, this is the proper response. It's interesting, guys, so make sure you understand what I'm saying. The proper response, first and foremost, is I believe and I rest in him, right? That's the, that has to happen first. If I'm not believing and resting in him, there's nothing else that happens. I believe and I rest, and then the appropriate response to him is the law. That's appropriate. It's right, and it's your joy. So we need to know him first. How do we know him in the gospel and everything that's been laid out in the catechism? We know him. We know him Trinitarian, uh, as a Trinitarian God as we see what the gospel unpacks. We know so many things about him as the gospel unpacks the truth about who he is. But we know that he's good. We know that he loves us. We know that he saves us. And unless we know those things first, and unless we are approaching the rest, make sure you get this. If you approach the rest of the commandments without thinking, I'm going to respond appropriately to who God is as in gratitude for who he is in the rest of the commandments. You can't do the rest of the commandments in any way that honors God or gives you joy. Did that make sense? And Ursinus like hammers this point in his commentary. He, 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 says, he says this, the first commandment must be included in all the rest. So in other words, I, I, God must be seen in his proper place. I must be responding rightly to who he is in the rest of the commandments. If I'm not doing that, if I'm doing the rest of the commandments that in a way that's not a response to who he is, then why am I doing it? Right? Fear, bargaining with God. Why am I doing it? It's got to be all flowing from, I see who he is. I love him because of guilt, grace. Now gratitude. I'm responding appropriately. And really, all we're saying when we say know him rightly and respond appropriately is to say no guilt and grace, right? And all that's unpacked earlier in the catechism. That's the foundation. Please hear this. You cannot come to this place in the catechism and insert yourself into it and move forward in the commandments without doing the first part of the catechism. It doesn't work, right? And please hear this. You cannot come to the catechism, open to this part of the catechism, say, I'm going to start to try to make this happen in my life without going back again and again and again to the first two parts of the catechism. You have to. 
And that's why he, he kind of just pushes this point over and over again in his commentary, but you have to know God rightly here. This is all flowing from knowing God rightly in what he's already laid out in the catechism. So you're going to come and you're going to think as you come for the rest of the commandments, I need to appropriately respond to who God is as I know him through guilt and grace and all that's been already said. That's how I'm going to think. How do I I respond? And you're going to be remembering there's a a promise with this obedience. There's joy for me. There's joy for me. Make sense? Questions, comments? We good? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think uh, to Matt's question of what's the difference between knowing this rightly or perfectly, mm-hmm. that answers the question of why do we teach the law? Yeah. Right? So that we would more rightly understand who God is yeah. and his requirements, both one, because we want to honor him, but two, we have to understand what he demands of us, and that's what reveals to us how good he is, because he relieves that demand. And, yes. You know, so. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, I love the way you broke it out in the tables. We don't hear about that enough. I know yeah. MacArthur calls it, you know, the first four to God mm-hmm. and the last six, six to um, your neighbor. Moral, in essence, to us. I can't wait for you to get to the fourth commandment because I am in periodic discussions with that one. Yeah. Because technically, before you peel all the onion away, mm-hmm. it fits the arguments high level of justifying why. Yeah. Yeah. Why it's the most important. And it's not. It, all, it all flows from the first. And that's what I want us to see today. It all flows from the first. So when we're thinking about this first, idolatry, what is an idol? When I'm giving to something other than God, that which belongs to God alone, what are the rest commandments going to do? They're going to explain to us how to give to God what is due to God and our neighbor what is due our neighbor so that we don't have those idols in our lives. All right. Let me pray for us. Father... Convict us of those places in our lives in which we are responding to other things in the way in which we should respond to you alone. Show us, Lord, places in which we trust other things to get what you alone give. And cause us to repent, Lord, as we see the love you have for us in the gospel. Teach us who you are, Lord, even today as we come to the sermon time. And as we respond to you in song and in the sacrament, Lord, we pray that you would teach us who you are such that we would respond appropriately to you. Lord, it's our desire. It's our desire to respond rightly to you. It's our desire to not have anything be in your place in our life, Lord. You've given us that desire as new, as new creatures. So as the new creation that we are, Lord, help us to have joy as we respond to you appropriately, put you in the proper place in our lives, and give that place to none other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.